10, 15 years ago, if you had a, your car, you can take it to the car mechanic and, you, you know, you can do a lot of stuff, you know, or you can figure it, you know, stuff out yourself by just uh, popping the hood and checking on it. Yeah. Nowadays, you, you can't even pop the hood on some of the cars. You have no clue <laughs> yeah. what's going on under there. No, you know, that's it, very true. You have to put a USB stick. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My oven recently broke and the engineer came out. He took the oven out and the oven was just like a couple of wires into a hot plate. And then it was just a motherboard on the back. And he's just like, yeah, I've, I've no idea. Uh, it's, if it's not working, it just doesn't work. You just need a new thing. You need a computer engineer for that. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to get into the situation where like your dinner gets burned because AWS has had an outage and it can tell the oven to turn it off. You know? Yeah. You don't want a Kindle fire in your flat. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at LaunchDarkly.com. What's up, Gophers? Our friends over at Gravitational made a big transition at the end of 2020 to rebrand as Teleport and shared a new product announcement to showcase the direction they're taking. Teleport is operating from a vision of being able to run and access software anywhere in a secure and compliant manner, something they call environment-free computing. With Teleport, engineering teams can quickly access any resource anywhere using a unified access plane that consolidates access controls and auditing across all environments, infrastructure, applications, as well as data. Teleport server access lets you SSH securely into Linux servers and smart devices with a complete audit trail. Teleport Kubernetes access lets you access Kubernetes clusters securely with complete visibility to access and behavior. And finally, Teleport application access lets you access Access web apps running behind NAT and firewalls with security and compliance. Try Teleport today in the cloud, self-hosted, or open source. Head to GoTeleport.com to learn more and get started. Again, GoTeleport.com. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Join 7,300 of your fellow Gophers and follow Go Time FM on Twitter. We post highlights from past episodes, links to interesting projects and repos, notifications for the live show, and of course, those oh so popular, unpopular opinion polls. Once again, we are at Go Time FM. Follow along. Okay, let's get into it. Here we go. Welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya, and this is GopherCon EU Live. We are Ooh. broadcasting live from the the conference. Internet. Yeah, on the internet. That's it. That voice you just heard then is my co-host, Natalie Pistanovich. Hello, Natalie. Hello, Matt. You're getting better every time improving my last name. <clears throat> That's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. I sort of do iterative development when it comes to people's names, as we're about to see. We're about to see an MVP of me pronouncing these names now of our <laughs> other guests. What we wanted to do is get some speakers from around the conference and have a chat with them and, you know, learn about them and also their experience with conferences and see where we, the conversation takes us. So we're joined, first of all, Dr. 
Joachim Kennedy, a security researcher, and you're giving a talk about Go and how it's used in malware, right? Yeah, correct. Welcome. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a little bit of a different than the other talks. It was. It was very good. And the talk will be available on YouTube in the future. So if you do some uh, searching, you'll find it. It is very interesting. Anytime you see Go used kind of in different and interesting ways, it's kind of, it does get amazing. We're joined also, don't worry, you don't just have to tolerate me and Natalie. We're also joined by Preslav Rachev. Hello, Preslav. Hello, hello. You spoke about digital artwork, right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah, and genuinely, like some of the images that you created with your code looked amazing, like really beautiful imagery. So I really do recommend people check out that talk. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. How did you find it, Preslav? How was the talk for you? The talk was quite enjoyable since it's something that I do out of passion. It was genuinely quite nice mm. to talk about the subject. Yeah, it was so good. I do recommend it. It's very visual. So you do want to watch the video on that one. Here's a fun fact oh. about Preslav just before we jump to Mathilde. Yeah. When we saw the art of Preslav, we actually asked if we can use it for our selfie booth. So two of the backgrounds that attendees were playing with, uh, all the colorful things with geometrical shapes, it was actually created by Preslav. So thank you so much for contributing art into the conference. That's really fun. Yeah, that is cool. And it was written in Go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all written in Go. If you guys allow me to add a fun fact, I actually put the two websites that I presented on my talk, I actually put them online. I, I think I tweeted about them, but maybe we can put it in the, the show notes as well. Mm -hmm. So using those links, people will be able to create similar artwork themselves. Oh, wow. Yeah. So please do. We'll put that in the show notes. Well, we also have a final guest. Last but not least, Mathilde Reinal. Hello, Mathilde. Hello. Welcome. And you are a student of cybersecurity. Is that right? Yes. And your talk is about quantum things, isn't it? Yes. Sorry, I'm breaking the fan here. But, uh, not at all, not at all, no. They say, don't they, that all our encrypted data now we feel is safe may not be in the future. So I'm excited to kind of learn a bit more about that. Maybe we could just quickly go around and do little intros uh, about yourself. Just tell us like what your interest is in Go specifically and what you've been doing recently. Or something fun about yourself doesn't even have to be work-related. Mathilde, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. So as you said, I'm a student in cybersecurity, which is a very big word that encompasses many, many things. <laughs> and what I especially like doing is working with cryptography and especially privacy stuff. Mm. And I work mainly with Go to break stuff and trying to propose better solutions, basically. Mm. So you break things and then you propose ways of fixing them. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Some people prefer just to go to the better step, and uh, I think the iterative way is uh, more fun. So Yeah, <laughs> very good. Cool. Uh, Joachim, you're Dr. Joachim. Do, do you insist that we use that, or are you fine? It's fine either way. Yeah, but yeah. tell us. You could call me with a first name. Yeah, so tell us. Uh, I don't know, Dr. Joachim sounds very cool, doesn't it? It's like Doctor <laughs> Who. Yeah. yeah. So how come you're a doctor? That's a good question, actually. Long story, but um, I will cut it short. I have always liked to do research. And, mm. you know, that's 
the really like the good way of sort of getting a good education in doing sort of research is to go for a doctorate because that's really what mm. the degree is in the end you know you spend your time uh. for three to five years three to ten years depending on you know what kind of field and um yeah it's it's kind of interesting in that because you kind of come in into an area and the goal is is almost to become an expert in something specific you know so right yeah well and again interest in security and, and yeah in particular your sort of malware talk is kind of amazing to see how people are, are using go i mean go is good for you know it has good concurrency it's quite stable you just a, a single binary that you have to ship there's lots of nice properties about go that we get to use but so do the hackers they get those same benefits don't they yeah yeah and there's a lot to it that sort of because the binary is, is very different than what we expect from a malware mm. usually they're very very small you know like so a lot of like antivirus or engines they didn't used to like if they come across a file and it's you know, 10 megabytes, they skip it because the likelihood that it was a malware is pretty low and the performance of scanning it, you know, because they'll do on the fly when you double click something, you don't want the computer to sit for a half a second or two seconds while it scans it. So they kind mm. of check the size and stuff like that. So that kind of, you know, one of the sort of ways it was getting around, not just sort of like the, a lot of the functionality, but it's also the inner workings of what actually is in, in there is also causing some problems. Mm, so, that's yeah, so it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. you see kind of people use Go to kind of encapsulate well-known malwares that's been out there for years, you know, like five, ten years that everything detects and you put it into a Go binary as a embedded resource and suddenly, like, no one detects it. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow oh it's, it's exciting i'm still like i used to like watch hacker movies and stuff and i'm, I'm basically the same person as i was then that was years ago so how long have you been doing go how long have you been interested in go mm, i think it started coding in it about five to six years ago something like that so mm. yeah it's been quite a while you know but it's always yeah. been sort of like a side project hobby sort of maintain a couple right. of projects around it and then it kind of as that activity sort of started, it started to bleed into the sort of like the professional side where mm -hmm. like those two things kind of collided. And the interesting thing was when I started to look under the hood, sort of looking actually at the disassembly or looking at the assembly produced, I felt like my coding got better because now I would under I understood better of what actually was happening, you know? Mm. Like you, mm. you realize the difference between like, well, if I pass this data in as a slice of bytes or should I pass it in as a string and you kind of, you know, the difference in just the size for the, like the function arguments and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Tiny little differences. Yeah. And Mattel, speaking of like security, I know that like our cryptography at the moment is kind of pretty safe, right? But that might not be true in the future, right? Exactly, you summed it up pretty much. So, I mean, let's face it, like changing cryptography and changing what we're using, it takes so much time. I mean, I don't know if you know, but like GitHub and I think mainly Git is still using SHA-1, which we know is broken, I think, for like 10 years or so. So we're, cryptographers are not known to be like the fastest people. So it's important to really think ahead 
mm. and be prepared when the real threat will be here. So that's the whole point of really studying, studying it now. Yeah. And it's the point that the quantum computers will essentially very easily be able to just kind of brute force the encryption. Is that the problem? Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, like, there are many questions that is, need to be asked. It's like, how much will it cost? Will it actually be as efficient in practice as what we'd expect? And so on and so on. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, like, quantum computers, they're believed to be super useful in many things, like modeling, uh, pharmaceuticals. But they, uh, if they appear not to be, then potentially people will stop putting money into it. So the threat will just simply be gone. It's really just like suppositions. So, but if indeed quantum computers are scalable, let's say, and accessible, then yeah, WhatsApp, uh, I mean, messages are read, but they will be read by anyone basically uh, at that point. Yeah. Will it be also messages from now that you will be able to read in the future or is it only in the future? Should we stop using all the internet? <laughs> no, but uh, <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, like 20 years ago, we we're not using, we we're using cryptography that is broken now. Obviously, the things that we should care about is like, is it worth storing all of the messages that are being sent around like today in order for someone to break them in like 50 years? I mean, it's not really... Ask the messaging yeah. companies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It is amazing. That blows my mind, that stuff, for sure. What's your talk called if people want to search and find it in the future? It's called, yeah, Taking the Quantum Leap with Go. That's a great title. I love Quantum Leap, the TV show. Is that a reference to that or is it an actual Quantum Leap? It wasn't my choice. You have to ask my supervisor about that. Mm. Okay, well. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's good. It's a TV show about a man that was able to go into and become other people through history, only within his lifetime. It's not out beyond, it's not like crazy beyond the realms of possibility. And, you know, and then he'd just try and uh, make things a bit better. Praslav, can you tell us a bit about your background and also what you're kind of recently, what you've been focused on? I tend to call myself aware of many hats because although I'm a software engineer by, you know, by sort of Many years of living and breeding in the industry, I, um, I also like challenges of different sorts. Like before the pandemic, when there were actual runs, I would go and, you know, participate in long distance running challenges. I also play various instruments. I started playing the guitar as a teenager, then I switched to a bass and been constantly looking for a band. I saw you, Matt, are, you know, quite into playing, you know. Yeah, we could do a band. There's just latency. But maybe that's what the band could be called. <laughs> and everything's slightly out of time. Bandwidth issues. <laughs> the latencies, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, so the most recent challenge beyond my talk on algorithmic art was actually moving a little bit outside of the industry as sort of engineer employee and jumping into the, to me at least, waters of being an entrepreneur, being a boss of my own. Mm. So, yeah, that's quite a challenge, but that actually no small part goal is in a way to blame for this because it was something that changed my path. And, you know, I'm happy to report that so far for the few months that I've been taking this path, I've been challenging the status quo and using the language in ways in which I wouldn't say it wasn't meant to solve. Actually, it was meant to solve them, but other things prevailed. Mm. been using the language mainly in situations where you would see others using something like 
Rails, you know, Ruby on Rails or say, I don't know, Python or something a little bit more dynamic. And I'm, I'm trying to challenge the status quo that, no, actually the language is pretty good for that. You know, it's also pretty good for small teams as building small applications for five people, just as it's good for, you know, building Kubernetes or, you know, something that powers like uh, gazillion servers. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, your talk, you really did demonstrate that. I mean, I've never seen Go used to generate something that looked that interesting and that kind of beautiful. Obviously, this is a podcast, so, you know, we can't, can't really rub it in too much. But I do recommend check it out because you just won't believe some of the imagery that was created and, and how, you know. So that is really fun. What gave you the idea for that? Just to reiterate on your point, and the amazing bit there, as I mentioned in my talk as well, wasn't is not the complexity of the code itself. Actually, if you look at most of my, I still call them sketches because of my processing background. You know, I started using this language that was meant for specifically for this kind of algorithmic art. And most of the works there were called sketches. So I still refer to my stuff as sketches. Mm -hmm. So most of my things say there are about a couple hundred lines of code. And, you know, I'd usually like just put them together and, there's not a lot of complexity in it as in patterns and here something happens and, you know, like you pass the code through five channels and I don't know what else. It's usually pretty brute force, but that's kind of the beauty of it because if you let it run for a lot of iterations, usually like five, 10, 20,000, these tiny bits of changes on every iteration they grow. You can visually see it. I, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to having the actual video from the talk because there was this one slide where, where you would actually see it. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, anytime code kind of gets, when you see new behaviors emerge from relatively simple bits of code, which happens quite quickly in my experience. Like I'm often surprised with just a few simple components interacting, even just a few simple functions interacting in interesting ways can be very surprising. And I think it sort of highlights really the complexity of what we're doing. We can't really predict sometimes and imagine what's going to happen, you know. So, and I think, yeah, the sort of chaos in some of this is really interesting to think about. I think people will get a lot out of that. And that's what I took a lot out of that from your talk specifically. I titled the talk Between Order and Chaos, and that's precisely how this type of art should be seen. It's the right balance of how much you're putting into it and how much of sort of randomness and, you know, chaos you're adding to the mix that actually produces this beauty. You can't, if you just enforce the rules too strictly, then it becomes, you can actually see that it was man-made. And, you know, you need a little bit of randomness to that. It's a great lesson in that it's almost like a philosophical point there that yeah, if you have structure too much and things sometimes a bit of randomness is just what you need does that also apply in security uh randomness to use a lot of that Joachim? yeah i mean obviously randomness is very very important in regards to cryptography which is obviously part of security you know Sometimes you hear, uh, we have in Go the, the math rand package, and there's also the other one, which is crypto, crypto rand. rand. Yeah. Yeah. So that surprised me when I first saw that. And people would say, don't use math rand, random numbers. If you're doing security things, use the crypto one. What's going on there? Oh, uh, should ask the cryptographer. But uh, so math rand is uh, it's a pseudo random function. Hmm. So it takes a seed 
And if you give that same seed, you'll get the same output in a predictable way. Right. That can be useful for testing, can't it? Where yeah. you have some random element in your code, but yeah. you want predictable output so you can make assertions about it. Yeah. Although Roberto Clapis, one of the security engineers on the Go team, his counterpoint to that is that actually, if you've got randomness in your program, then you should have that randomness in your tests as well. Yeah. Because then it's more real. Kind of interesting take. The way I can see it, it potentially be useful is if you're launching different tests and it's failing, and if you're using the same seed, you'll get the same order because it could be some, you know, some state that's stored between tests or something like that. And it only happens in a certain order. So that could be good with maybe like a, you know, a predictable randomness. Mm. Normally it's, a, it's random. Yeah. yeah. Still find uh, RAND somewhere though that still use math random and just seed it with the current timestamp. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, that's what I do, but I don't, uh, not, for, <laughs> not for security. I use it, you know, no. if I'm doing something fun with it. Mathilde, why is it different though, the crypto? Literally, like, what's the difference? I mean, they're both pseudo-random, aren't they? Because it's impossible for a computer, isn't it? A computer doesn't have like a random chip in it that can do random, do they? No, and it's a shame. And actually, it's a very funny story because when I learned Go, it was a project about randomness, how to oh. produce randomness. So that's why I'm smiling when we're talking about that. <laughs> And to be very honest, I, I used to know the answer to the difference between math.rand uh, and crypto.rand, but I must admit that I forgot about it. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, fair enough. I don't know. I think it's something about predictability or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Math random uh, is predictable. You, you can add a, a random seed mm -hmm. to this, as like the crypto random, but it also mm. will use the pool from the operating system with entropy. So like if on Windows, it will do a Windows API call that will get some randomness where like mm -hmm. on Unix. The dev you random, I guess. Yeah, I think we use dev random on Unix systems. Mm -hmm. so. so yeah, there is also an API, which what they've done is basically captured the background radiation from the Big Bang. The randomness in that, you know, the static you see on old TVs when they weren't tuned into any station, you just get that fuzzy static. That's the background radiation from the Big Bang, apparently, according to scientists, if they're to be believed. So, And there's an API that allows you to ask for random numbers from that source. And so actually, if you really do need random, then that's a, quite a good way to do it. I can imagine that if I'm uh, going to use this in my sketches, it would take five years to get a sketch out. <laughs> well, doesn't it, Cloudflare used to have uh, lava lamps in their... Um, mm -hmm. It's like at the entrance and it was just a webcam yeah. that, because it's like non-deterministic in how those blobs are moving around and they use that to see all the key generation. Yeah, and that, that's amazing. Is that random enough? I know lava lamps look random, but is it hard to predict? I guess it must be. That's why they did it. Yeah, I think so. And I guess it, unless you solve the Navier-Stokes equation, which governs all the fluid movements yeah but then also <laughs> that's you all you've can, got to do isn't it? yeah but then you can also claim like the whether the million dollars or something like that price it's part of like one Nobel of those price yeah <laughs> yeah or you could just turn the heating up in that room so that yeah. temperature is just really hot yeah <laughs> and then yeah but i suppose they've controlled their temperature at cloudflare uh don't want to get into any legal 
battle, I'm sure they control the temperature of the lava lamps <laughs> that they use for randomness. That is really cool, though, isn't it? How fun. And to see that when you walk into their office, to see all those lava lamps stacked up, it is really fun. This episode is brought to you by our friends at LaunchDarkly. Feature management for the modern enterprise. Power testing in production at any scale. Here's how it works. LaunchDarkly enables development teams and operation teams to deploy code at any time, even if a feature isn't ready to be released to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release more widely, update the flag status and the changes are made instantaneously by the real time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com. So I was interested in, maybe we could go around and just find out something you like about Go and something you don't like about it. There are pros and cons, of course, there are lots of trade-offs. But just specifically and um, personally from your point of view, Prislav, maybe you could tell us, is there something you like and something you don't like? That's a good question. Asking a person who's been writing Java for most of his career. You love it all, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, probably it will sound like a cliche, but I think what I like most about Go when I first approached it, and I have to say for someone who's been writing code since I can basically remember since the early 2000s, I'm a fairly recent sort of adopter of Go, I would say. Like, I only met the language in a company switch at the end of 2018. But what I love about the language is this sort of what everybody says about it, you know, this sort of simplicity, this kind of, there's usually one way to do things and you don't have all of these abstractions flying around. And, you know, it was sort of the best thing that happened to me in sort of retrospect. But at the beginning, when I, you can imagine me coming from this sort of J2EE sort of certifications and if it ain't like a factory builder, I don't know, you name the end of the pattern kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's it's not authentic. Approaching the language at first was, what the, is going on in here? You know, like you ain't going to tell me that this language, like, you know, that doesn't even have like a you know, and map and filter and reduce and all these kind of goodies and mm. let alone the lack of generics and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from there to now is, you know, it's, it's amazing. And it's a, you know, it's a testament to the power of the language. Yeah. About the uh, things that I don't like about Go, as I already said, I think there were a lot of things that I didn't like about the language, but, you know, in time, I learned to like them. In yeah. time, I learned to love them. Yeah, I, I had the same journey. I kind of used to do a lot of C-sharp in the past. And I think I have some examples of really good use of object-oriented structures and type hierarchies and things. I also have a few examples where I built monsters. You know, I built some cathedrals. I built some monsters, too. And, you know, when I went to go and realized that you don't really do that, you sort of, it did feel like a limitation. But of course, now I find code much easier to read. There's less chasing around trying to understand the structures that are built there. Of course, there's still that to do. And of course, you can still 
make a mess in Go, and I'm sure I do sometimes. But yes, I agree. I, I like that it has fewer language features. You sort of then you left building things with those more primitive features. Mathilde, what do you think? Is there something in particular that you like about Go and something you perhaps don't? Well, the thing that I like really the most is, I mean, I work mostly in, in groups and really this ability to read the code after someone and to understand what the code is doing, what they intended to do and mm-hmm. what it's yeah achieving, it saves so much time, first of all. Mm. And yeah, it's just so much simple to work with Go than mm-hmm. other languages from a personal point of view. But this is maybe a bit biased because I gotten to know Go, so maybe I just read faster. Mm. And from the things that maybe I like less, I think that would be when comparing to other languages, it's maybe this lack of enforced security, if I can like mm. like that. I mean, mean? the rest comes strong with like all those things, and I'm wondering like where it could go from there. Mm. Yeah, we just had a security panel with some of the Go security team. That was a very interesting conversation. And they were talking a lot about kind of trade-offs that they have to now Mm -hmm. make. And they have the backwards compatibility to consider and things. So, yeah, it's a kind of uh, interesting problem. What about something you don't like as much then in Go? Matilda, is there anything in particular you don't like about Go? Um, No, I mean, I agree that this is something that I don't like, but this is okay. But other than that, really nothing. Uh, I see. Yeah, it's to my mind. Gotcha. I have to say to your point of Go being so well read, I recently find myself reading a lot of code in other languages. And I just come with this expectation of just easily mm-hmm. reading and understanding even different people and like different company cultures and stuff. And it spoils you a little bit, right? Mm. And it's true. It, it can be that this is because You've been doing Go for long enough, but it's probably just because the language is so well read and some other languages are not putting enough stress on that. So it's definitely puts you in a spoiled position. Yeah, the Go fumped also, the formatting the oh, code yes. all in the same way really helps. It has the effect, sometimes genuinely, I've gone to a repo, looked in the code and felt like I'd written it. That's how familiar it felt and it's really quite a strange feeling but yeah I think the impact of that is that it has a great effect and I agree I don't think other people pay as much attention you know for example everyone has linters but they're all very configurable because people have different tastes so you end up with different rules it's kind of you have to learn when you join a project there is a learning curve to get into that project and that learning curve is a little not as steep I think with Go. So you're all speakers at GopherCon EU 2021. What made you want to submit? Like, what was the driving force behind that decision? Uh, Joachim, why did you submit a, a talk to the conference? Picking on the one that didn't submit a development-focused talk. The first, that's great. <laughs> We'd kind of just have wrapped up a report around sort of the, what this sort of talk was focusing on. And it sort of just came up on the, like my radar of like the call for paper was closing. And, and I thought this could actually be a good introduction <laughs> to sort of it, at that conference because it brings something different, but it is strongly tied to the programming language. Mm. So 
both a little bit of a challenge to myself and then also sort of an introduction to the audience that would attend it, sort of shifting of how it would be presented instead of moving it and talking to you know my peers that are well-versed in sort of how malware function and things like that, to mm. people that are fully aware of the language and its capability to how that is being utilized in the in sort of in the field yeah it's a really good yeah. talk i do i can't recommend it enough how about you prasav well yeah for me it's been kind of twofold i mean obviously there's the kind of selfish aspect to it being a part of the community and you know being able to exchange ideas and you know just generally that's not selfish well i mean people can think about it from the point of view of this guy who recently jumped into independence and, you know, like trying to build a network, which is always there. I mean, it's always one of the aspects of making a talk and participating in a conference. Mm. But I think the real driver behind it was that I wanted to show something different to the audience, you know, something that we all know what the language is capable of and what it's not capable of. But I think many people would see go and say, yeah, it's, you know, it's a good tooling and systems and infrastructure, maybe some backend language. And, you know, I wanted to kind of challenge this on the one hand and say, you know, it's actually good for artistic stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And maybe if I could think of even a third reason right now is be able to just give people something nice, something that they can do for themselves, really, you know, it mm-hmm. just experiment and play, you know, these last, well, not two years, but, you know, like it's been forever since we were, you know, able to physically meet each other and, you know, like uh, network and kind of enjoy just talking to one another and being able to produce something nice that just, you know, makes you feel proud of yourself is something that I also wanted to kind of give to people. Hmm. Oh, that's great. I think they're completely noble reasons. And and yeah, you know, <laughs> you, you seemed a bit reluctant to talk about the kind of profile thing and, and, and networking and that effect that happens. But that is a real effect, of course. So that's why we always like to encourage new people to come and speak. And similarly, the point you made about you wanted to give people like something to play with is something I think that does get a bit overlooked when we get stuck in our jobs and we're focused and we're busy, we don't sometimes have space to play, but it's so worth it because you never know what new thing happens, what inspiration is going to hit you that you can then apply in other ways. One example that stands out to me is for particularly your stuff, Pravab, the artwork design, like generating that with code. GitHub recently for the, when you share an issue in social media, will now, the social image that's in the metadata is a little image that shows the issue and you can see some kind of stats and you see the title. So it's a kind of great experience when we're now sharing links around that get unfurled. People can then see a little preview of it. You could definitely take the stuff from your talk and enhance that and use that in a way to make those more interesting and things like that. So just as an example of something that occurred to me when I watched your talk, you never know. And so I think it's important we should make time to play you know, the benefits are there and it's really kind of can spark that creativity, can't it? That's actually a great idea. I think I haven't thought about that in particular, but it's actually a great idea, you know, just like turning that into maybe why not into an actual product or something, you know, something that stands as a service on its own. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, to your point, Matt, like 
I recently had this conversation with a with a with a friend of mine, and uh, we were talking about side projects and what they're good for and what they're not good for. And I think what came out of this discussion was really that one thing that you can allow yourself to do in a side project that's not your job is you can fail easily. And that's yeah. one thing that also relates very well to the artistic stuff, I think, because in producing this kind of images, I think I must have failed like a hundred times before something that caught my eye came out. Mm. And that's actually a good thing because it forces you to change things. It forces you to tweak parameters to, you know, maybe put a little bit of a timer in front and see what happens. It forces you to tweak these things. And mm. I think it's generally a great idea if people find these sort of tiny ways to just move, you know, like maybe use the same tools and, you know, the same skills that they do in their day job, but, you know, use them in a different way. And I'm not really into IoT, but I've seen some amazing stuff like, you know, people using Go for microcontrollers and things like that, which is also, you know, full respect. Yeah, you make a great point there because that ability to fail, and this is something teams need to try and work on, I think. You have to be able to fail, otherwise you're not going to take any risks. And we need to take those risks to try the things out. And that's really where innovation happens, a lot of it. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's a great sentiment. I'm pleased you said that. Mathilde, how about you? What inspired you to submit a talk? So this library and the talk that followed is based on my master thesis. And the guideline that I use and really what I wanted to do is to answer the question of how can we make quantum cryptography more accessible? And I mean, one of the obvious answer is, well, get it out there and let's talk about it. Mm. So yeah, that's like really cool opportunity to get, to be able to present it at uh, AlgoverCon, that's for sure. Well, it's such an interesting subject. I mean, are we talking about, is there going to be like a Go package that has an interface as though it is quantum enabled? Is that possible? Or are the concepts just too bonkers for that to even work? Well, we made things really, really simple. So we really looked at what, what exists, what are, for example, like, uh, so we have, for example, a signature mechanism. And there are things that exist, like, every, I mean, many people use ECDSA and things like that. So we tried really to provide the a library that is super simple, like very like a signing step, verification step, and people are not even aware both in terms of like what they can read and like the performance of their project that they're using stuff that is potentially going to protect their data well into the foreseeable future mm. and really that was also like a key like objective yeah <laughs> that's great again the same thing applies go to youtube search for GoForCon eu 2021 check out the talks you are in for a treat This episode is brought to you by our friends at Cockroach Labs, the makers of CockroachDB, the most highly evolved database on the planet. With CockroachDB, you can scale fast, survive anything, and thrive everywhere. It's open source, Postgres wire compatible, and Kubernetes friendly, which means you can launch and run it anywhere. For those who need more, you can build and scale fast with Cockroach Cloud, which is CockroachDB hosted as a service. It's the simplest way to deploy CockroachDB and is available instantly on AWS and Google Cloud. With Cockroach Cloud, a team of world-class SREs maintains and manages your database infrastructure so you can focus less on ops and more on code. 
Get started for free with a 30-day free trial or try their new forever free tier that's super generous. Head to cockroachlabs.com slash changelog to learn more. Again, cockroachlabs.com slash changelog. So, who has an unpopular opinion for us today? So, I was gonna go for like pineapple and pizza, and then I realized that like I'm a student and I have to be like more serious. No, so, you don't. <laughs> you don't. You really don't. That is a great one. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I have a backup. So, mm-hmm. if you don't like it, we can always go back to the pizza. Yeah. The pizza one. Yeah, the pineapple. What's the backup? Melon. So the backup is that I think that Python is actually not that great. Uh, that's not going to be unpopular in this conference, I think. <laughs> really? Yeah. But it's used a lot in maths, isn't it? Yeah. And in machine learning and things. So it has a kind of precedent of mathematical libraries that people use. And that's why, and I think Juniper books as well, that, that sort of tech has kind of carried it through. But what is it you don't like about it? Well, there are many things in like... I mean, for example, like it's, I feel like it's really slow. And like, if I have an idea and I want to port it from like paper to code to show that it works, well, performance is going to be one of my criteria to see whether it works or not. So if it takes like, I don't know, like twice the times just because I've chosen to use Python, I'm not going to be happy with that. Mm. Also, the fact that it can only do one thing at a time, this is super annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you wouldn't like me then. Uh, I can only do one thing at a time. Brilliant. Let's find out. Joachim, pineapple on pizza? Yes or no? Prefer not to answer. Don't want to sway it in any direction. Uh, oh, really? Maybe. Uh, so, someone in the someone in the technical. So, I think about like in a technical field and stuff like that. So, mm. um, the thing of ease of use of technology, I believe, is mm. a detriment to the society it's leading us down sort of a problematic path mm. you know as the younger sort of generation is growing up and they're sort of operating in this abstract area and doesn't necessarily understand what is actually happening under the hood yeah and, and i think it's sort of like a almost like a de-evolution kind of because of it <laughs> that's uh, interesting yeah it's funny because i have nephews and nieces and honestly they're better they can't talk but they can use an ipad no props <laughs> and i mean that like they properly know what they're doing on an ipad they can't talk yeah it's mad but then you kind of uh, yourself like you're probably in sort of that generation that sort of grew up with like a bbc micro and like started writing actually you know assembly and code your own games and things like that or programs and you actually are moving mm-hmm. You know, data around which is you know so close to how a cpu works versus yeah. you know like swiping on screens mm. yeah <laughs> that's true the, the mechanical sympathy with the mm-hmm. machine does help uh, definitely but i mean you know if your goal if your job is to build an application and maybe it doesn't really matter what's going on down in the assembly level does it i mean maybe it is a little bit of a too much low of a level but I'm thinking more in general is, mm. you know, the technology is sort of growing out and it's being used so much 
and the understanding, uh, the general understanding of what's actually happening is not there anymore, or it's sort of like it's moving away. The way you can mm. when we think about it is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, like if you had a, your car, you can take it to the car mechanic and, you, you know, you can do a lot of stuff, you know, or you can figure it, you know, stuff out yourself by just uh, popping the hood and checking on it. Nowadays, you, yeah. you can't even pop the hood on some of the cars. You have no clue <laughs> yeah. what's going on under there. No, you know, that's it, very true. You have to put a USB stick. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so, my oven recently, on that, my oven recently broke and yeah. the engineer came out. He took the oven out and the oven was just like a couple of wires into yeah. a hot plate. And then it was just a motherboard on the back. Yeah. And he's just like, yeah, I've, I've no idea. Uh, it's, if it's not working, it just doesn't work. You yeah. just need a new thing. You need a computer engineer for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't want to get into the situation where like your food your dinner gets burned because AWS has had an outage and it can tell the oven <laughs> yeah. to turn it off. You, know? yeah. you don't want a Kindle fire in your yeah. flat. Praslav, how about you? Do you have an unpopular opinion? Well, actually I do. Before I say my unpopular opinion, or maybe it's popular, who knows, mm-hmm. I would have to throw away everything that I just said about <laughs> ghost simplicity and you know being, being, being nice to read and write. So my unpopular opinion for the day is Trying to put it nicely is we need more magic and more Java-like enterprise-y looking frameworks in Go. I'm kidding, of course, but you know there's a little bit of truth to that. And I'll just give an example with my own experience. Mm-hmm. And you know, both while picking up the language and both as kind of trying to sell my services to you know small teams or people who have like you know existing projects that are just migrating to the language. So the thing is, we know that the language can do a lot more than just sort of what people assume by idiomatic. Just to give a, maybe a simple example is reflection. You could do a lot of stuff with reflection and we oftentimes avoid it or just push ourselves to avoid it thinking that oh no, it's not idiomatic and there's like too much magic in it. We can't see, you know, what's behind those tags and, you know, who knows what's happening. And maybe it's like taking too many CPU resources and whatnot. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And there's a way and there's a time in the evolution of a project when all of this can be fixed. But usually when people are starting, and especially the kinds of projects that I'm working on, which is, you know, like trying to challenge a little bit, a little bit of the realm of Rails and, you know, the web kind of crud applications is at the beginning of each project, you just need to bootstrap it and, you know, get something going. You need to test your concept. You need to get it out to the world and see if it's working before you start optimizing. And oftentimes the best solution is, you know, who cares if like, you know, we all know that ORMs are bad and they do too many queries, but if you can quickly hook up an ORM and, you know, it just does the job, then so be it. You know, you'll eventually figure out a way to improve it. I don't know what you guys might be thinking about it. And, you know, I don't want to push this too much into... (laughs) into a territory where, you know, I can get a lot more enemies than future clients. (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, honestly, it's funny. It kind of depends on the problem you're solving. Things are different. And so I think you have to make those decisions depending on your situation. It can be impacted by how many people are working on the thing. How long's the thing going to live for? Is it something you just need for a week? And then you throw it away? Or is this going to be a big project spanning years, months and years with many people working on it? All of that would 
influence that decision. So I think it makes sense. From from my experience, it's always circumstantial and it always undergoes further evolution. So there's always a, a point in which it can be fixed. Mm. Well, very interesting. Well, that is our time for today. Thank you so much to Natalie Pistonovic for helping co-host today. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you to our speakers. Prislav, thank you very much. Joachim, always a pleasure. Mathilde, lovely to meet you. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of GoTime. If this is your first time with us, subscribe now at GoTime.fm or in your favorite podcast app. Just search for GoTime. You'll find us. And if you enjoy the show, please send it to a friend or a colleague who might also enjoy it. We truly appreciate it. GoTime is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next time on GoTime, Carolyn Van Slyke joins Matt and Johnny to talk about Porter, a single command to find and deploy any application, regardless of tech stack. Stay tuned for that one. We'll have it ready for you next week. <laughs>